Matthew 28 is our text this morning. So I'm going to ask you, if you could, to find a copy of the Bible somewhere uh, in front of you or grab yours and, or your phone or tablet or whatever it is and turn to Matthew 28 this morning. Matthew 28. This is our 98th sermon and probably last sermon in the Gospel of Matthew. I know, somebody said I should do two more, right? You have a nice even 100. That just, it seemed right to me somehow, but uh, I'm not sure. I, I thought about coming back and sort of capturing some of the big themes that we've seen rather, and I may still do that next week. Um, although what I've found is that this final paragraph actually brings together many of the thematic threads that have already been introduced throughout this gospel. Um, Just the way Matthew just put this together under the guidance of the Holy Spirit was just uh, really masterful, I think. And uh, we see here several of these themes that came out in the beginning of this book that are now being brought back together at the end, such as the kingship of Jesus Christ, his rule and reign. That was a theme early on, way back in chapter 1. He was identified as the son of David, to whom were given the great promises of God of reign over God's people. And in chapter 2, he was... Uh, He was uh, searched for as the one who was born king of the Jews. Well, now, in this last paragraph, we find that theme expressed in our Lord's claim that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. Early on in the gospel, we saw the uh, proclamation of the good news by John in chapter 3, by Jesus himself in chapter 4, proclaiming the gospel. And now, again, that becomes a main theme of this last paragraph. We saw early on the calling that took place of the uh, apostles back in chapter 4. And this calling now culminates again here in the end of the book in their new and great commission. We saw the theme of the area called the Galilee, as a prophetic reference to the nations of the world back in the beginning in chapter 3 or chapter 4. And now once again, Galilee takes center stage as Jesus has told his apostles to meet him in Galilee and there they will see him. And so it's no wonder then that the commission from that Galilean mountain was to be a global one. What we often referred to as the Great Commission. Let's read that together in Matthew chapter 18, excuse me, 28 verse 18. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. That's, excuse me, verse 16, now verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. There is in this text three things that we should see. Three things that the Lord Jesus first uh, gave to his apostles and three things for us to take note of. We see in this text the great commission. We see the great comfort that our Lord gives. And we see that these are grounded in a great claim that our Lord has made. But I want to draw your attention, first of all, this morning to the Great Commission. To the Great Commission. There is only really one command in this this verse, uh, in this uh, sentence. There is one verb here. It is the main command, and that is to make disciples. He tells his apostles to go out and make disciples. To make pupils, to make Learners, followers, adherents, people who would receive and hear and act on everything that Jesus had said. But then he also um, expounded on that commission to make disciples by the use of two verbal ideas that help to explain that process. The first is this, that they should be baptizing them and teaching them secondly. So I want to focus on each of those and how those fit into this broader uh, mission that the apostles were given to make disciples of all of the nations. In the first place, that ministry was um, characterized by baptizing disciples in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is Baptism, that is, is the beginning of discipleship. It is the first step of faith. Baptism is identification with Christ and with his people. And once again, baptism, in fact, is one of those thematic threads that Matthew introduced at the beginning of his record. Remember back in the beginning, in Matthew chapter 3, this is the way that we saw John introduced, who was the precursor of Jesus' ministry, John the prophet, also called John the baptizer, or the Baptist. And uh, John was out there by the River Jordan immersing people in the river. John 3 says that he chose this particular spot because the water was plentiful there. Baptism, of course, in general, was nothing new to John or to the New Testament, to Jesus. The Jews practiced many kinds of ceremonial washings, various washings in the Old Testament to remove ceremonial uncleanness so that a person could be uh, prepared, that he could be um, ready to enter into the presence of God, to come into communion with with God in in the midst of his people and especially in the worship of God. There were various kinds of washings in the Old Testament There was the sprinkling of blood and of water. There was the washing of the hands. But what John was administering was what the Jews came to call tevelah. Tevelah was full body immersion in running water. 
So a person would be immersed in a spring or a stream um, or sometimes in a, uh, a special pool for ceremonial cleansing that the Jews called a mikvah. And this was done to remove serious ceremonial impurity from a person and or to prepare them for unusual service for the Lord. So, for example, a woman after her period would go through the mikvah and through the process of tevilah, or the priest who was getting ready to enter into his priestly service would also be immersed in the mikvah. This was also done in connection to conversion. So, for example, if there was a non-Israelite who came through the testimony of God's people to believe in Jehovah, in Yahweh, the one true and living God, he became a proselyte to the true religion. He would uh, be, uh, be baptized. He would be immersed uh, like that. And this is apparently what John was doing out at the River Jordan. In fact, I heard one modern rabbi call John the Baptist, John the Mikvah guy. So he was out there performing this tevelah. He was essentially saying to these people who thought that because they were descended from Abraham that they were God's people, he was essentially saying to them, you are so far from God that you are not his people. You are like those outsiders out there. And you have become the unbelievers um, that are surrounding you. And you need to repent and come into the true Israel of God. This was John's message. It was a message of repentance and remission of sins by true faith in God's promise. John was out there baptizing, we found from the very beginning of this gospel, and shortly after, Jesus, through his apostles, also baptized his followers. And so here he is now at the end of the gospel, enshrining baptism as the definitive initiatory rite of his community, of his disciples. And through Christ, Jewish Tevilah has come to have an even deeper significance, actually, because Colossians chapter 2 and Romans chapter 6 make it explicit that baptism, Christian baptism, is symbolic of union, of being grafted into Jesus Christ, being united with Jesus Christ in his death and burial, and united with Jesus Christ in his resurrection to new life. So that symbol of baptism is now infused with an even deeper meaning and has become that first um, step in this Christian discipleship. Jesus is saying, go out and make disciples. What do you do? The first step is baptism that unites them through faith, unites them to the Lord Jesus Christ, as they go into the waters of death and come out as a new creation, like Noah who went through the waters of death and judgment and came out into 
almost literally a new creation, or like Israel who went through the Red Sea that brought death and judgment on their enemies and came out into new life. This baptism is an act of repentance. It's an act of repentance of sin. Remember remember John's message from the very beginning. He preached, repent. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And when Jesus came in the beginning of his ministry, he preached the exact same thing. The apostles would preach it this way, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. So all along, repentance is so closely associated with baptism. The flip side of repentance, of course, being faith. Faith in the Savior from sin. So Mark could say it this way, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. This is not to say that baptism, water baptism, is the essential element. Faith is essential. But it is to say that baptism is the initial way that people expressed their faith. It is an appeal to God, in the words of Peter, or a pledge to God of the faith that is in their hearts, and an appeal for cleansing, for uh, a washing that comes from God alone. I want to ask you this morning, have you ever come, have you, have you, ever come to the place of repentance, brokenness over your sin, an acknowledgement of your sin, and faith in the only one who can save. I would admonish you to examine your heart right now while you're listening to me say this. Ask yourself, what about me? Is that true for me? Have I been raised with Christ to new life? Have I been born again into that new creation? Maybe you have begun to believe the gospel, but have not yet identified with Christ in baptism. And my my message to you this morning is that apostolic message, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Confess your faith. Identify with the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, one other really remarkable thing about this command that is given to the apostles to baptize is that that baptism is to be done in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, right? which I say is remarkable because these three are held right here together as if they are equals. In fact, the word name here in your text, when it says be baptized, baptizing them in the name, that's a singular name. This is only one name, and yet it is the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. In other words, each of these three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, shares that name, that character, that being or essence. This is an absolutely key verse for you to remember if you're a Christian, to remember, to understand and to begin to explain to somebody the doctrine 
of God. Who is God? God exists as a trinity. Friends, make no mistake about it. Three distinct, Father, Son, and Spirit, and yet one. One in name, one in character, one in being and essence. We saw the Trinity at Christ's own baptism, right? Earlier, back in, what, chapter 4, when Christ went into the water, there was Christ in his body, but out of heaven was the voice of his Father in heaven, and coming down from heaven was the Spirit, like a dove. And now, then, we have the commissioning of the apostles to make disciples, beginning with baptizing them in that name, that singular name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I want to tell you this morning that the Christian gospel is a uniquely Trinitarian message. It is uniquely Trinitarian. In other words, anyone who denies the Trinity is not preaching the gospel, not the Christian gospel. This Trinitarian nature of God enshrined in our very baptismal formula, the very first step in discipleship. Salvation is the work of the Trinitarian God because salvation is part of God's plan to manifest himself by glorifying his son. This is what God is intent on doing, friends glorifying His Son in whom He is well pleased. Salvation spills out from that desire for God to glorify His Son. Salvation is also brought about through the Son's voluntary reception of the wrath of His Father against sin. Out of love for us, the Son's voluntary reception of the wrath of God in our place against our sin, and salvation is effective only through union with Christ by means of His Spirit. No one will be saved in any other way but through Jesus Christ, and that, I say, comes about only through His Spirit enlivening and indwelling His people. And so, if there is no Trinity, then there is no gospel. There is no Christian gospel. So the apostles were then to make disciples. And they were to make disciples, first of all, by baptizing. And they did. Those apostles went out through the earth, making disciples, teaching, baptizing. One of the earliest Christian writings that we have outside the New Testament comes from probably the very first century I mean, just within years of some of the writings of our New Testament. And it's called the Didache, which means the teaching. It's the teaching of the apostles, not written necessarily by the apostles, but taught by them to others who then wrote them down. And here's the words of the Didache that reflect in in large measure, the apostolic teaching. They write, And concerning baptism, baptize this way. Having first said all these things, baptize into the name, singular, of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Baptize in living or flowing water. 
like a river. Of course, that's what John was doing, right? That's what Jesus did. But if you have no living water, then baptize into other water. You might picture a mikvah. But if you have neither, then pour water three times upon the head into the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. So the apostles went out and they were doing exactly what our Lord said, making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the triune God into the Lord Jesus Christ by the power of his Spirit. But in addition to that, they were also to go on teaching those disciples. Notice he says, teaching them to observe what? All things that I have commanded. Of course, this was the heart of discipleship. Discipleship was Jesus saying to people, follow me. In other words, hear and receive what I have to say, accept it, and live live it. Follow me. And this is, of course, why we're here this morning. As I'm continuing to unfold passage after passage of the teaching, the commandments of our Lord Jesus Christ, as we're doing that in our Sunday school classes with the children and in the Bible studies for the adults, every Sunday we sit under the teaching of those apostles. We're not coming making up our own stuff. I don't come to you with my own ideas. Everything that I say, that I should say, as a pastor, should be chastened by, directed by, molded and shaped by, and given impetus by the apostolic testimony. That is, those men whom our Lord chose and the, uh, the uh, prophets who worked with them to give us the New Testament scriptures that we have, along with the prophets that gave us the Old Testament that our Lord revered as well. This is why we gather every Sunday to hear that apostolic testimony teaching us all things that the Lord commanded. And when you are involved, when you are involved, many of you in teaching a Sunday school class to children or leading an adult Bible study or teaching your family at home, when you do that, you are fulfilling the Great Commission For the commission, the mission that Christ gave to his apostles was not just to get people through a baptistry, but to make them into wholehearted, lifelong, committed disciples, followers, and learners of our Lord Jesus Christ. Belief, then, is no end to discipleship. It is the beginning. This is no end point. This is a commencement ceremony for these young men these men uh, who were the Lord's disciples. This was the beginning of of sending them out and the beginning of uh, the ministry of discipleship for others who would have a beginning and go on and continue. Discipleship continues and continues and continues until the day comes when you and I are finally obeying everything that Jesus ever commanded. Then we're done. Then our discipleship is brought to its consummation. And until then, we continue to disciple and to be discipled. I've I've been heavy of heart through the years to 
witness what people who really seem to be disciples of the Lord, as far as I can tell, and have grown in their understanding and commitment to all that Christ has commanded up to a certain point, and then have seemed to, I don't know, just feel like they've gotten as far as they're going to go. Um, and this is, this is not, I thank God, not what I've seen by and large among you. I am thankful for that. And I just admonish you to continue to let the Word of God challenge you. Challenge your thinking. Challenge the way that you're living. I guarantee you, there are areas of your thinking that are not yet fully brought under submission to the Lord Christ. There are activities and actions in which you are involved that need to be questioned and shaped by His revelation. There are things that you believe that need to be challenged by His Word. And I hope and I pray that you and I will be people who are continually willing to be changed by the apostolic revelation of the commandments and the testimonies and the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ about everything. I will tell you this, the longer I've studied the Scripture, the more, uh, I don't know, I don't want to be discouraging to you, I want to be encouraging, but I've, I've found that because of my sin, I see now more ways that my thinking needs to be founded on Christ's Word than I ever imagined before. I don't have enough time in my life to think as deeply and Christianly as I should about all of the things there are to think about in life. And and I'm thankful that by the grace of God, He does raise up gifted people to help us so that we're not alone in this, that we work together. And I continue to pray that young people will go off and think not just about the details of their calling, but about how to think about their calling from a robustly Christian perspective. That's what we need more of. So Christians to think about all of life as it is shaped by the commands of our Lord and all of the revelation of the Word of God. I say we need more of that. This is discipleship. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. And I want you to notice also the scope of this great commission. Right there at the beginning. Go and make disciples of all nations. Which is a shift, of course, for the apostles because up to this time in their ministry, the Lord has sent them 
to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He, in fact, explicitly had instructed them at times not to go to the cities of the Gentiles or the Samaritans. But now the time has come. Now the groundwork has been laid. Now redemption has been paid. Christ is ready to come into his own. And it is when he comes into his own It is when he is seated at that throne that the Father will give for him, give to him a people from every tribe and nation of the world. The kingdoms that sat in darkness are going to see a great light. The Satan who bound them in chains of darkness for century after century after century is now himself bound and Christ is coming to spoil the house of the strong man, to bring people from all of the nations to himself. This is the beginning of something, I'm telling you, it's something amazing and astounding. We live in the middle of it, so we, we, we don't realize how amazing this is, that, that this is a global thing going on that we're a part of. I mean, this is unlike what it was before Christ. But now, the gospel is going far and wide through these apostles. It is to go far and wide, Jesus says, to all of the nations. And then, notice also there is a prerequisite here that is sort of understood or implied as a part of this command to make disciples of all of the nations. If you're going to do that, what are you going to have to do? You're going to have to go. right? And so that is the prerequisite or the implication that that is a part of this command, go. Go to all the nations. And go they did. Now, reports and legends about the apostles abound, and not all of them are trustworthy. We don't have a biblical inspired record of where the apostles went from here. Very many of them. We have some records. Of course, we have extended record, thanks to Luke, of the ministry of the Apostle Paul, but of the other apostles, we we know less. But it is safe to say that the apostles went far and wide as heralds of the message of the risen Christ. Eusebius, an early um, writer recording the history of, of the church, he implies that the Uh, apostles actually sort of portioned out the map and went off in various directions to spread uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Tradition says that the apostles went to Syria, Armenia, Scythia, which today comprises many of the Soviet, former Soviet countries, to Parthia, which is modern Pakistan and Afghanistan. To the west, they went to Greece and to Asia, which is Turkey, we would say today. To Rome, possibly even as far as to Gaul, which is France, or even to Britain, perhaps. To the south, they went all across northern Africa to Egypt and Libya and Ethiopia and Mauritania. And to the east, they went to Persia, Iraq and Iran, as we know them today, and uh, even possibly to India. That these apostles spread out all over the globe, and certainly their followers continued 
those kinds of ministries. We do know, of course, of the journeys of the Apostle Paul, who established churches all across the Roman Empire. And we also know that by the end of the 3rd century, the beginning of the 4th, there were strong Christian communities in many of these places that I have mentioned. So the apostles were to take the gospel out to every nation and to make Christ known, who is not just the king of the Jews, but who is king of kings and Lord of lords. And we know from what Jesus said next that he actually envisioned something far beyond the first and the second and the third century. He envisioned something far beyond those men to whom he spoke on that mountain all those years ago. Because of verse 20, here we have the great comfort. Take note of verse 20 again. Christ promised that his presence would be with them to the end of the age. Always, he says. This is a great comfort. The Lord promises to His apostles His own personal presence. It is a personal presence. He says it kind of explicitly. I myself will be with you. He would come to them in His Spirit who would empower the Christian witness. And He does today, friends. He empowers the Christian witness and breathes life into what would be just merely Um, dead words, human words, but he makes them the words of God. As we say the words of God, he makes them the words of God for those who are, uh, who, who hear. He brings those words to life. He causes them to find um, reality, to, to create a reality within them. This is that personal presence of Jesus Christ. These people were not going out and and, and leaving Jesus behind. They were carrying Jesus with them everywhere they went, across the steppes and across the plains and out into the deserts and up onto the mountains and into the caves and wherever they went, across into the biggest cities and the smallest towns, wherever they went, they were carrying their Christ in them and with them. And Jesus promised that he would be with them I myself am with you. I am. That's literally kind of part of the sentence in Greek reads this way. With you I am. Which of course can't help at least remind us if nothing more is intended. At least it reminds us that he is in fact the great I am. That he is that same ancient one who revealed himself to Moses and to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob that I am is with them. In other words, the book ends here, Matthew's gospel ends just the way it began, with Emmanuel, God with us, right? God with us. I'm going to tell you, boy, what an encouragement that is. When you stand to preach or when you stand up to teach or when you sit down with your children around the table and you open open the Word and you so desperately want to see a work of God, and you feel so inadequate, and you know your own sin and your own failure. I mean, who in here has not felt that? But to know that it is God Himself who is in there, in you, with you, in that moment, speaking His Word into the hearts 
of the hearers. What a blessed encouragement that would be for them. What an encouragement it is for us. So it is a personal presence, but it is also what our Lord promised was also a persistent presence. And I want to note, pay, uh, I want you to pay attention to a couple of words that highlight this. The, first of all, the word always, right? He said, I am with you always. Literally, in Greek, it reads this way, all the days. I am with you all the days. As many days as there are going to be, Christ will be with his disciples, accomplishing this mission. In other words, here you begin to get the idea that this looks beyond the lifetimes of 12 men. All of the days that are coming, Christ will be with his people to bring this commission uh, into, into life. And the other phrase is, until the end of the age. Until the end of the age. And that is a reference to the final consummation of all time. In fact, Matthew consistently uses two different words. Um, I, th- I think the way that they're used is consistent, I should say. The word for end, to the end of the age. Um, because, you know, of course, in the Bible, uh, God talks about ages past. So what age does he mean he's with them until the end of? He's using here, uh, I'll just give you the Greek word, okay? So you don't have to remember it necessarily, but it, just to make the contrast, the word is suntelos. Telos means end, but it's got that prefix on the beginning. He said, I am with you to the suntelos, to the consummation of the age. And Matthew consistently uses that term to refer to the final consummation of history where he uses merely the word telos, not soon telos, but telos, to refer to the end of those former days or the end of the Old Covenant era, which was, of course, still yet to come at the time our Lord spoke to his apostles originally. But he's referring here to the end of the ages, the end of time, the end of God's plan for the whole history of redemption. Until that day, Jesus says, I am empowering my people with my people, giving them authority to accomplish this mission. All of that to say, these two terms, I think, give us the, the, the put before us this constant reminder that the mission is ongoing, that, it's, that it wasn't completed or it wasn't brought to its consummation in that first century, it still is yet here for us today. And Jesus says to them, I will be with you and I will empower you, I will guide you, I will accomplish that work until the end of days, until the consummation of the age. In other words, the commission is continuing for us. For us today, the followers of those first disciples whom we call the apostles, We are not apostles, not apostles of Christ, but we are following in their steps. And I have to remind us this morning that there are many communities in the world with little or even no gospel witness at all today. That there are new people born into those nations, some of whom the apostles went to, 
but there have been new generations of people born into those nations that remain unreached in our day. There is a need, a great need, if the Lord will have his throne rights, there is a great need for his followers to fulfill this commission in our day and to leave their places, to scatter about to the four points of the compass and proclaim the gospel in those places. There is a need for a new generation of young people who are willing to live lives of radical trust in the Lord, willingness to count the pleasures of this life as nothing compared to the pleasure of seeing Christ exalted in the nations. We're willing to leave home and family and transplant themselves into a place where the gospel is very little known. And I want to put before you young people that God is calling people just like you. God is calling young people like you to set aside their lives for this calling. It's not just something that they decided to do. It's something that God commissioned them to do, has laid on their hearts to go. And I, what a joy it would be, wouldn't it, to send some of our kids Maybe to send some of us old people too. I don't know. That God would raise up people to send. This also means there is a new, a need for a new generation of people to send. Because look, all of us are called to this commission. You're either called to go or to send. And if you're not going, I ask you what you're doing to send. What you're doing to pray. I don't mean just every once in a while, God bless the missionaries. But I mean in earnest, to labor, as Paul the missionary said, to labor together with me in prayer. What are you doing to send? Are you encouraging missionaries? Encouraging pastors and preachers of the gospel around the world? Encouraging those who are doing the Lord's work in discipling people? within the church, shaping their, their families, their churches, and their communities with the commands of the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you encouraging? What can we do to encourage that? I tell you one thing, God has given us all more than what we need financially. And if we're not called to go, we're called to send by giving. To give, to see, not, 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 not to give to build our brand or our name or build up our missionary, or, but to build up the, the glory, the global glory of Jesus Christ. Who wouldn't give to that? That I can give to for the global glory of Jesus Christ, the risen Savior. Maybe this morning you need to, and I, I, want, you to, I want you to grapple with it this morning. Not just hear a sermon and say, well, that was interesting or good or boring or whatever, but really right now to grapple with this, with your part in this great commission, to go home and think about it.
pray about it. Talk together with your family about that. Talk with your kids about it. Talk with your spouse. What is our part? Because the mission hasn't ended. We are not yet at the consummation of all things, and there are people yet to be reached. Well, then I want to end this morning with this, that this commission, encouraged by this comfort, is grounded in the great claim that our Lord made back in verse 18. We looked at this last week, but I want you to see how it all ties in now. This commission to go and make disciples of all the nations, this commission is grounded in the great claim that our Lord makes in verse 18. Notice it again. Take note of it. Here's the claim, and it's just an audacious claim. All authority. Universal, no exceptions, all authority, and and in heaven or, or in earth. Global, cosmic, universal authority, he says, has been given to me. And he's speaking here, as I mentioned last week, not of the glory that he has inherently as deity, but the glory of the obedient Son of God, vindicated and raised and exalted to God's own right hand. That glory, he says, has been given to me. And look at the next word. This is the whole key to it, right? What's the next word? The word we just read over. Therefore. Right. So here's the ground. That's why I say this is the ground, right? Because the, the commission is built on this. All authority is given to me. Therefore, go. Therefore, make disciples. You know... This mission that Jesus gave to his apostles and now to us by extension, this mission carries people to some very difficult places. Some places where the authority that stands against God has outlawed its proclamation. I'm talking about the human authorities in those locales have literally outlawed the proclamation of the gospel in those places. But what does Christ say? All authority is given to me. All of it. So go. So go. Because there's an authority that's over that authority. There's authority that stands supreme over all. Even here at home, we witness in our communities. And you know, I think we, if you're a sensitive kind of person, you feel it that thinking that is in the mind of the other person saying to themselves, what gave you the right to talk to me like that? To make such bold claims. To say that your way is the only way. To to even bring up the subject of religion. You know, the polite conversation, you don't talk about politics or religion, right? And yet, here you are, and you're talking to your neighbor And you begin to talk about religion. And you can just almost feel sometimes people just sort of shrink back like, who gave you the right to go there? And the answer is the one who said, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. So go. I give to you that authority that is rightfully mine over all people. This is... A really, I mean, this is, I wanted to end with this because this is, the, this is the fuel that lights the fire of evangelism and mission. All authority 
Jesus said is given to me. I want to tell you this morning, you have the authority to say these things. All right? You have the authority. If you wanted to be delegated with the, with the authority to do it, I hereby, in the name of Jesus Christ, delegate you uh, with the authority to make these proclamations that are in line with the Word of God. You have the authority, the authority to command all men everywhere to repent and to believe and to follow Jesus Christ as Lord. You should not feel guilty for being for what people would perceive as being pushy. I mean, it's one thing to be obnoxious in the way you go about it, of course. But you have the authority. You should not feel like you're stepping outside of your bounds because you have this one who said to you, all authority has been given to me. People say, you know, you have no right to make that claim. You have no right to criticize other religions. Who gives you the right to criticize my lifestyle? Who gives you the right to command anyone to obey your God? The one who said all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. I mean authority over unbelievers, authority over skeptics, authority over Muslims, authority over liberal Christian friends, authority over all. We should not feel guilty because we are empowered, we are authorized. That's a good way to think about it. You are hereby authorized as an extension of that apostolic testimony to make the claims of the gospel. You are authorized by the one who holds the rightful authority over it all. I just love the way the gospel ends. Christ is given all authority over all nations to teach all that he's commanded for all ways. I mean, you just can't get any more universal than that. And so let us go forth with boldness this morning, with renewed, a renewed sense of boldness, proclaiming the rights of King Jesus over all things, who is himself the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Amen. Heavenly Father, now our prayer is that you would water the seed of the word that has been sown into our hearts through the preaching of the word. That it would not bounce on unprepared ground or be choked out by the things of this world that may call our attention away throughout the course of this day and this week. Not be squashed by the feeling of trouble and persecution and concern for what others are going to think or do. Our prayer is that you would right now make our hearts into good soil, ready to receive, and that you would water the word that you've given to us. We pray it in Christ's name.